At 9.30 a.m. on April 30th, 1912, the cable ship the Mackay Bennett steamed up the harbor in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Bells rang in church towers at minute intervals. Residents watched in hushes, in gasps, and then the ship pulled back into port. Just shy of two weeks earlier, it had been dispatched with both care and haste, with 100 pine coffins and three tons of ice, a recovery ship, a floating morgue, call it what you will, but it arrived back with bodies. The harbor was quiet. Entry had been heavily monitored and limited. The rightly frenetic grief of family and friends was kept from this ceremony, this bleakest of the bleak. On the stern were the caskets, piles of them, a large tarp stretched across a section of the deck, and beneath it, bodies not yet awarded one of those pine boxes. In the hold, even more bodies. On top of ice, the crew could only hope had held up and done its job. One newspaper reporter described the scene this way, quote, the nervous tension of the moment affected the undertakers, perhaps more than anyone else. One gray-haired carer for the dead played skipping rope on the dock as the morgue ship drew in, and those who saw him laughed harsh, unnatural laughter. Men from the Red Cross mixed buckets of disinfectant and sprayed them over the entire dock, a covered gangplank, the pile of coffins. The city was, in those moments, a morgue within itself, it seemed. The sailors lined up and the caskets were passed one by one. John Jacob Astor, Isidore Strauss, first-class passengers already embalmed, ensconced in those caskets. First-class prioritized in life and prioritized in death. Their wealth could not travel with them to wherever they went, uh, of course, but it ensured that their bodies would be embalmed first at sea given the best chance at a proper funeral, at some kind of physical goodbye with their loved ones. Second and third class passengers, sewn in canvas bags, crew bodies from the foredeck. Most of the crew recovered had been buried at sea, though. The social structure, blown to bits in some ways during the sinking, now restored. Death had been an equalizer of sorts in the North Atlantic night on April 15th, but In this after, it was privilege once again that ruled the day. 306 bodies were pulled from the sea. 116 of them were buried at sea. So out of the water, not too long. The other 190 came to Halifax, a kind of homecoming, even though it wasn't for them really home at all. I'm L.A. Beatles, and this is Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is Still the Sea Seems Strewn, the Mackay Bennett and Titanic's bodies. First off, 
little disclaimer. I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, You know, this episode is a lot about death. And the Titanic story is so much about death, even though sometimes I think it's easy to forget that when we talk about everything that came before the sinking. But this episode is about bodies and death and embalming and nothing too gruesome in terms of descriptions, but it's just, you know, the concept of death kind of hovering over the whole episode. So just a, you know, just a heads up in terms of what you're uh, headed into. Um, All right. So Halifax is the capital of Nova Scotia, and it was the closest major port to the site of Titanic's sinking 375 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. The White Star Line had contracted with Halifax agents A.G. Jones and company, and through them chartered the commercial cable company's cable ship, the Mackay Bennett. And Mackay is M-A-C-K-A-Y. I believe I am pronouncing it right. The reason that I know how to pronounce the word Mackay this way is that uh, the film 1917 that came out a few years ago, which is a great movie, I highly recommend. The actor in that movie is George Mackay. And I was saying George McKay over and over and uh, my husband corrected me and several people corrected me. So it's burned into my memory. And I think that applies to this ship as well. So Mackay Bennett. It was named for two of the founders of the commercial cable company, John W. Mackay and James G. Bennett. The Mackay Bennett had arrived in Halifax in 1885, based there to facilitate sea repairs of underwater telegraph cables in the North Atlantic. White Star also contracted with the largest undertaking firm in the province of Nova Nova Scotia, and this was the John Snow and Company Limited, which had been founded by a man named John Snow. And uh, he's John Snow Sr. in terms of, um, and I don't know if he went by that in his day to day, but in terms of talking about the family, we'll call him John Snow Sr. Uh, he founded it in 1883. By 1912, he worked alongside his sons, John R. Snow Jr. and W.H. The company received assistance from basically every undertaking firm and embalmer around, though, in all the provinces of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. This was a massive job, and there was a lot of banding together of everybody in the field. I did read online that... Snow's company had been given the task of search and recovery of another shipwreck, the La Bourgeon, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, uh, in July of 1898. So that scene had been particularly gruesome of that shipwreck uh, because some of the victims, once bodies were recovered, it was revealed that the, the bodies kind of seemed as if they'd survived several days waiting for rescue in the ocean. It's pretty brutal. So I want to mention before I go any further, I'm about to talk obviously about the ship, about the embalmers, the undertaking process a lot. I want to mention um, the website of a man named Todd Van Beck. And I just, I like to give credit to sources, obviously not only in, you know, my kind of bibliography that I put on my blog when I post an episode like this, but just specifically when a source I run across has really helped me understand and conceptualize, I like to say 
say a name, say a place on the podcast, credit where credit is due. And there's an article that this man named Todd Van Beck wrote. I believe he is a funeral director and writes a lot about the history of undertaking, embalming, that sort of thing. And he, I'll put the link in the show notes, but he wrote an article on his website about the Mackay Bennett. And it just was really moving because he writes about, you know, not just the facts and the history, but as someone in that field, he writes about the idea of caring for the dead. And I hadn't really thought about that concept before. I'm a person who is decidedly, <laughs> I very purposely spend most of my time trying not to think about caskets and morgues and things like this. But this episode obviously forced me to open my brain to some of this in new ways, which I think is healthy, creepy, but healthy. And, you know, these bodies, these titanic bodies and all bodies, they need caring for. We don't normally think of caring for someone after they've died, but that's what, you know, the entire profession of undertaking embalming is. One or two of the embalmers that worked with the Mackay, with the bodies that came off the Mackay Bennett were women. Uh, and let me tell you, I spent hours uh, chasing First, a false lead, a source that had mistakenly listed one of them as Mary Walsh. Actually, that source was um, Todd uh, Van Beck. I think he got a couple of names crisscrossed and, you know, not a historian, and it probably was just a, an honest mistake, so no big deal. But I was looking for these women that were embalmers for the Titanic bodies, and actually, thanks to a listener who follows the pod on Instagram – Thank you, Clay. I realized that I had the names wrong, and the names were actually Elizabeth Walsh and Annie O'Neill. And it's unclear definitively whether they were on the ship or whether they involved the women when the ship came back in. But based on what we know, it's pretty likely that they were not on board the Mackay Bennett when it sailed. It's much more likely that they met the ship when it arrived and that the women were, uh, the women bodies, the female bodies were then embalmed when the ship arrived. Uh, and I want to thank David from Twitter, who lives in Halifax, I believe, and he's the one that confirmed for me with the source there, just kind of that basic idea that um, that likely the women were waiting at the at the port when the Mackay Bennett came back in and that the embalming of of women probably didn't happen out at sea. But all this to say, it sent me down a rabbit hole of searching for information on female embalmers cuz that idea really enthralled me. And then I went down a rabbit hole of the history of embalming more generally and before I knew it, I needed a whiskey. Um, uh, it's just a lot. And it's, um, you know, I, for just speaking about myself, for someone who listens to so many haunted podcasts and paranormal podcasts and reads books about, you know, historic hauntings, I really get very squeamish when I talk about all of this. So there we go. All right. I thought I would share just a little bit about what I found, though. And in terms of the process of embalming in ancient times, in cultures across the world, I know that that is a rich and complex history. I cannot speak to that history. I did not have time to do that research, and I just don't have the skill set in terms of academic research in those eras. But in terms of the sort of modern, more modern era of the history of embalming, 
you know, 19th century and forward, I did read some interesting stuff. So the transfer of kind of embalming knowledge from Britain, from Europe, had made it over to the United States by the mid-19th century. And the Civil War, the American Civil War, was really a crucial turning point. And not only the knowledge of embalming kind of being made you know, public, becoming part of dialogue with the general public. But just a, a process of professionalization starts. So the Union Army had embalmers in the field when major battles were taking place. They set up tents, they prepared bodies uh, in a you know more organized manner than perhaps before. And those soldiers, the bodies of, of soldiers were returned to their loved ones when possible. These physicians, uh, and they were considered physicians, were embalming surgeons in the field. The Department of the Army regulated this, and they required that these embalmers have a security bond. From what I read, this was sort of the first licensing of embalmers because they had to prove their skill and uh, their training in some way. And I don't know how much any of you may know about the history of medical practice in the United States, for example. I don't know a ton, but from what I do know, you know, up until about 125, 150 years ago, it was kind of dicey, uh, particularly in rural areas. Uh, you know, a lot of, of quote-unquote physicians practicing uh, with kind of dubious claims to their education or without proper licensing. And the in the licensing and the professionalization of the medical field is a very, you know, in the long durée of history, a very recent phenomenon. So this is, anyway, I found this history of embalming so interesting in terms of that. And in terms of the Civil War, it's also the embalming of Abraham Lincoln's body after he is assassinated that, I mean, think about that, that he was carried on a train for 1,700 miles with stops for viewing by 100,000 people along the way. And that's possible at that point because of the embalming of his body. So embalming chemicals were mass produced by companies uh, that held patents. Some companies employed like traveling salesmen who could teach how to use their product and and demonstrate. I don't know who they were demonstrating on. From the immediate post-war period, and post-war here means civil war, into the early 1900s, into the you know beginning of the 20th century, the preparing of bodies and embalming of bodies was actually still largely done in the home. The embalmer would put the remains in a bed and do the process of injecting chemicals and removing blood, all of that in the home. So he would bring all of his equipment to the home of the deceased. And I say he uh, here, but as I'm about to talk about, women do start entering the field as well. The use of the bed for embalming, though, uh, just 
over time, people realized this wasn't the most effective way. So then that eventually turned into a folding table that embalmers would use. Um, the body would be laid out in the parlor in a coffin and then taken to the church or cemetery. So this process was still taking place in the home. So eventually, though, people realized that this wasn't necessarily the best idea. There were a lot of incidents where during a wake, uh, the floor would collapse under the weight of a coffin and actually hurt people uh, who were mourning. This happened more than you would think. In some places, there were actually deaths caused by this. So by the late 1890s, funeral parlors were equipped with rooms for you know, preparing the bodies and for uh, and chapel spaces for having wakes. So by the 1900s, there's a lot more organization in the profession. There are journals, associations, schools. And so really, it kind of seems to me like that period from 1890 to say 1910, and we're, you know, what we're talking about is in 1912, there is this very uh, organized and sort of uh, frenetic energy around creating a professional space of embalmers and embalmers getting to know one another, creating these community organizations, these professional organizations. So the when Mackay Bennett goes out and, and when the Titanic bodies are embalmed, it's right at the end of this period where the profession has become so well organized. In terms of women, the role of women in a funeral service and in embalming is so crucial. And one of the reasons why it is, is that, you know, from Victorian times onward, and I'm sure before then, and I'm sure for some people still after, there's this idea that a man shouldn't see a woman's body even in death. And this pushed a lot of women into the field. Sometimes women were called, quote, the layer outers of the dead, and they prepared the bodies of women and children, cleaned them, dressed them, and women started embalming them as well. By the end of the 19th century, women embalming demonstrators were noted in the pages of these journals that had popped up. Mademoiselle Lena Odu had been a nurse. Uh, she's I'm just using her as one example here that I ran across. Her school called the Odu Institute for Lady Embalmers, can't make this stuff up, amazing, advertised, quote, instruction for women. The aim and purpose of the Institute is to prepare women for service as embalmers under the inspiration and training of women instructors. So whatever may have pushed women into the fields, you know, once they were in it, were trained in precisely the same way as men. So a bit of a tangent, thanks for bearing with me, but I think this is so crucial in understanding you know, with the story of the Mackay Bennett and Titanic that were right at a crucial point of a move towards modernization of the field. And so a lot of what I talk about with the process of embalming these Titanic bodies, I, there's a big benefit here that it's happening when it does. And so this process can be more organized. And that women were there in the story is crucial too. Again, I don't think that they came on board the ship, which would have been a very male space crew-wise, but I do think 
based on the research I've done, there was at least one woman, Annie O'Neill, and perhaps two, Annie O'Neill and Elizabeth Walsh, who were waiting, and we'll talk about this more, obviously, um, later in the episode, were waiting for those bodies when they arrived back to embalm. At the Halifax waterfront, several tons of ice were poured into the ship's tanks and holds. Uh, Also brought on board were cooling boards and jugs of chemicals, of course, for the embalming. Um, All of the embalming fluid available in the entire area was on board the Mackay Bennett. A hundred plain wooden coffins were brought on, and at the time, everyone involved seems to have believed these would be enough for the bodies that they would find. There were the ship's crew, headed by Captain F.H. Lardner, who had, you should look at photos of him, had a fantastic mustache. And he apparently advocated for paying everyone double because the trauma of what they were about to experience was, uh, seems pretty palpable. Also on board was Pastor Canon Hind from Halifax All Saints Cathedral, who would officiate burials at sea. And then, of course, on board, John R. Snow Jr., embalmer, son of the undertaking firm's founder, Snow Sr., and he was, by all accounts, put in charge of the procedures and planning on board the Mackay Bennett. So when I mentioned Snow from now on, I'm likely talking about him, the younger Snow. He's very important in this story. At 12.35 in the afternoon on Wednesday, April 17th, just two days after Titanic disappeared beneath the surface of the North Atlantic, the Mackay Bennett, now the largest floating embalming facility seemingly of its time, not a distinction anybody wants, left Halifax Harbor on its solemn and sobering mission. Wireless operators on the Mackay Bennett put out calls as they steamed ahead, requesting any ships in the area uh, of the sinking, uh, let them know if they had spotted bodies or debris and where. Messages came in from liners along the route, sightings of stray bodies, wreckage, icebergs, and the Mackay reached its main search area on Saturday evening, April 20th. Clear weather turned to fog, and according to the diary of a cable engineer named Frederick Hamilton, they spotted an iceberg as they approached the area, quote, where lie the ruins of so many human hopes and prayers. Hamilton also claimed that the embalmer, Snow, was, quote, more and more cheerful as they approached the site of his work. Uh, Sounds a little creepy out of context, but he does go on later to point out that the joy, so to speak, he observed came from Snow's pride in his job as an embalmer, a labor of love, Hamilton called it. But it's also undeniable there's a tone of confused wonder in Hamilton's writing about Snow, perhaps even a little bit of judgment of his temperament. In 2011, Snow was resurrected a bit himself in a work by author Alan Wolfe. The Watch That Ends the Night, which is a novel, kind of, (laughs) more of a series of narrative poems that fictionalize the thoughts of various passengers and crew of Titanic. It's a stunning work. I've talked about it before when I did the Titanic in fiction episode, um, but it's it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of art, uh, this book. And I don't normally call books that, but this book is. So I'll read a passage from Snow in The Watch That Ends the Night. So again, this is fictionalized. This is not from an actual diary entry or anything, but uh, it's it gives a sense of, of perspective. Quote, one of the firemen Armonius Wiseman swears, it's as if they wanted to clamor aboard, 
I didn't sleep a wink all night. I'm undone. But I am the undertaker, and I am an old hand at death. Men who walk among the dead as I do must cultivate a certain emotional remove, indifference, an indifference to death, indifference, an indifference to the dead. So this is two snows, which is not weird. We don't know this man. He didn't leave us much. A few photos of him with bodies, a few photos of him with canvas bags, a few quotes here and there, a sense of duty that shines through even the thinnest sources. So maybe both snows can be real. And maybe like most of us, he was a man with a thousand faces and a thousand emotions. So the next morning, the embalming stations are set up. 51 bodies came up the first day. Basically, the process is that they would send a few of the crew out in smaller boats, and then they would, you know, pick up the bodies that they could, and then those smaller boats go back to the Mackay Bennett, uh, lift it up. They had to be very cautious because of the weather, obviously. Hamilton described it in its grim detail, quote, hauling the soaked remains and saturated clothing over the side of the cutter is no light task. He called the sea strewn with bodies, with chairs, with debris, which I don't think we've ever been culturally conditioned to visualize. We've been so programmed with the image of the ship going down that it's hard to imagine what came up. Hamilton wrote that he saw splintered woodwork, cabin fittings, mahogany fronts of drawers, carvings from staircases, deck chairs. I started to think about all this, about this part of the narrative being such a gap in what we've heard the Titanic story as, and I can't help but believe that perhaps the White Star Line didn't want us to visualize the debris field. And remember, the Mackay Bennett has been chartered by them. A debris field like Hamilton describes, like a crew member describes here, pretty much proves in April of 1912 already that Titanic did break into two before it went all the way down. And back in 1912, that's not a narrative that the White Star Line was comfortable with. The idea that the ship broke apart, though of course we know now to be so glaringly true, that wasn't really allowed as a theory to gain traction then. It was bad optics. But back to embalming on the Mackay Bennett. Snow, as the embalmer on board, had developed a plan. As each body was brought up, a piece of canvas with a stenciled number on it was attached. And in the ledger, a description was made on a corresponding numbered page. Hair color, height, weight, age, markings like scars, and tattoos. I was shocked at the prevalence of tattoos for sailors during this era. I guess I had just never thought about it, but this sent me down another rabbit hole. So first you should know, I, I went back to the original sources of the body descriptions from the Mackay Bennett, and in, I saw so many tattoos described, quote, blue tattoo mark, quote, left arm tattooed all over, right arm clasped hands and hearts, breast, Japanese fans, one with a, quote, Chinese dragon and an American flag. And all of this to me seems so strangely modern, really. So I went down another rabbit hole, this one of the history of tattoos and sailors. So again, there's a more ancient history here that I'm not necessarily addressing. There are, there's a lot of evidence that sailors, you know, bore tattoos before even the 17, 16 or 1700s. But Captain James Cook's voyages in the Pacific during the second half of the 18th century 
Um, and several sources I came across cited this as a crucial turning point in the history of tattoos for sailors. They exposed Royal Navy sailors to Polynesian body art, and this brought tattoos to sailors in Europe and America. In fact, the word tattoo, I did not know this either, is derived from the Polynesian tatau, T-A-T-A-U, which indicated marking the human body and phonetically imitated the sound of the tapping of the tattoo needles. Super interesting. So tattooing spread really quickly among British and American sailors. It was you know, a cultural thing, staving off boredom during long hours at sea, uh, sailors learning how to become tattoo artists and tattooing one another. By the late 18th century, one third, it's estimated, of British and a fifth of American sailors had at least one tattoo. So there you go. And apparently the tattoos could uh, signify different achievements. Um, I did, you know, I mentioned that I saw one description of a Titanic body of a sailor with a Chinese dragon tattoo. And apparently that meant that as a sailor, you had been to China. So, uh, and apparently uh, during the World War One, so just a few years after, you know, what we're talking about here, though, as part of kind of a push with progressive era, there's a lot of political going on here. There was a push for sailors to move away from what people viewed as more explicit tattoos, you know, parts of women's bodies or things that might be considered, uh, you know, to a more conservative eye, um, something flashy. A lot of uh, sailors were asked to cover tattoos up. So anyway, just again, so interesting. Uh, so back to the embalming process on the Mackay. So bodies brought up, description was made, number was assigned. There was a witness while a full inventory of a body's effects were taken, you know, things like money and jewelry. And uh, here's where class comes into play, guys. The plan was simple on this based on source after source that I read. And there aren't a ton of sources, but everyone that I had confirmed this, which is that the plan was that first class got priority with immediate embalming on the ship not necessarily for women, though, because like I said, I don't think that the female embalmers were on board, but for first class men, immediate embalming and storage, and then second and third class would be frozen and embalmed later, and then some, mostly crew, would be buried at sea as needed, though it's not clear in the research, at least to me, whether this part of the plan was original, the burial at sea for the crew, or if it was decided upon arriving and seeing how many bodies there were that the crew would mostly receive the burial at sea. This really begs a lot of aching class questions, and it's heartbreaking really to realize that this huge number of families grieved back in Southampton and that they would be least likely to have the absolution of a burial for their loved one, of ever seeing their loved one's actual body again. The costs of shipping a body, even if given the option, would have been prohibitive for most, if not all, of the crew families, but to be clear, they're really not even given an option. Halifax authorities would allow, they had made clear, only frozen or embalmed bodies back into port. 
Pastor Hind officiated the first burial at sea that night. Bodies too com- decomposed, they thought, to take back, but these also were mostly crew, and some of them, from what I read, were not necessarily decomposed. So they were sent back to the sea, weighted down with iron bars brought forth that precise purpose. Grimm doesn't even do this scene justice. Uh, Hamilton called the crew cold, wet, miserable, and comfortless. I spent a lot of time with old newspapers for this episode, uh, more so than probably any research I've done for the podcast so far. And it was really exhilarating. I think, you know, I did a lot of, of archival research for my PhD when I was in grad school. And I admittedly wasn't the best at it because at that time I wasn't studying something I was super passionate about. And so that process always left me a little deflated. But now that I'm studying something I am this passionate about, you know, I was printing out, you know, (laughs) newspaper articles I had to use a magnifying glass for and kind of just digging back into such minutia, the type of minutia that, you know, you look up and it's been five hours and maybe you have two or three nuggets of information, but where you just sort of, you know, jump in to the research. So it was, you know, while this topic is obviously incredibly somber and moving and sad, it was, I hope it's okay to say, exhilarating to do this archival research. And I think there's a lot still to be written about the Mackay Bennett and this whole part of the Titanic story. And it really got me thinking about some writing that I want to do about it. Uh, One article from a newspaper in Illinois had an interview with an electrician who was on board, a man named Gerald Ross, who confirmed what I believe we probably all have suspected about the situation, something Snow apparently said at some point too, which is that, quote, many of the bodies buried at sea were as recognizable and well-preserved as any of those now lying identified at the morgue. And he obviously gave this quote after they arrived back in Halifax. We'll talk obviously more about that morgue later. But for now, let me say, if you read the primary sources on this, it's obvious. I had gone back through the inventory of belongings and identification marks on many of the men who were buried at sea, like I mentioned earlier. And it's so glaring, really, that some of these people were perfectly identifiable, had family or friends had the opportunity to view the bodies in some way. Some listed as unidentified and buried at sea had tattoo markings that had their sweethearts' names uh, or or markings on their body that would have made them very specifically identifiable. Some had postcards and addresses in their pockets. Ross also claimed that they'd brought up a body of a diamond smuggler. Ross said he felt, quote, a peculiar hard lump in the back of the coat, ripped the lining, and discovered half a dozen diamonds that were turned over to the purser of the ship. And this may be one of the men who was buried at sea. I'm not sure. Ross also recalled finding a couple, but his recollection here I want to use to show how slippery a slope sources are. So we consider this a primary source, obviously a first-person account from someone like Ross but cross-referenced with the passenger list and the actual records from the ship, it doesn't quite add up. So Ross says he remembered the couple was called the Roins and that a woman wore a low-necked dress and around her neck was a costly string of pearls. 
but there were no Roins on board. There was a couple found in the recovery process called the Robins who traveled in third class, Alexander and Charity Robins. They had gotten married when Charity was just 16. Alexander was a stonemason and they had, wow, forgot this part. They had nine children, but only two lived past infancy. They left Britain around 1886 and lived in Yonkers, New York, where they were on obviously the census records from 1900 to 1910. That's how we know this. They made several trips back to England, though. Alexander worked as a stonemason in the United States as well. Alexander and Charity returned to Cornwall for a family visit in early 1912, and they were obviously returning from that trip on Titanic. Uh, and they were actually traveling with their nephew. So Charity's effects from the Mackay Bennett were listed as one gold ring, one wedding ring, and one diamond ring, a purse with the words A. Robbins, second class ticket from the Olympic, gold watch and chain, two receipted accounts and excess luggage ticket from Plymouth, uh, and a few coins and notes. So no pearl necklace that I could see. Ross's emotion is perhaps the best part of the interview as a source, though, as it gives a real sense of in the moment trauma witnessed. Quote, the first few nights, all hands felt creepy. This is what Ross said. I know I did, but after a while... We got used to it. A fireman on board recalled much later in life how a corpse at one point had tumbled from a pile of bodies and seemed to pursue a crew member down a hallway. This was living with ghosts. The state of the bodies, I think, is the human base question. And it's a question tied into the witnessing of the sinking, the experience of it, this question of the bodies as evidence of how everything happened. Snow said about the recovered bodies, quote, everybody had a life belt and bodies floated very high in the water in spite of sodden clothing and things in pockets. Apparently people had lots of time and discipline for some had on their pajamas, two or three skirts, two pairs of pants, two vests, two jackets, and an overcoat. In some pockets, we found quantities of meat and biscuits. In most every man's pocket were found quite a bit of tobacco and matches and vials of whiskey. In other words, a two and a half hour sinking, as we know, time to return to staterooms, time to imagine that you might lose most of your belongings, but perhaps in a lifeboat you'd survive with a few cigarettes, a nip of whiskey, and wait to be rescued. These people knew it was bad, of course, that night as the water seeped in, but a lot of these people thought they'd live on a lifeboat in the water. Sometimes I get goosebumps when I think of how many people on that ship probably thought that they'd survive somehow in the water waiting to be saved. It's an interesting question, one I'm sure in the little shadow parts of our brains we've all considered. What would we be defined by in a moment in time if the contents of our pockets were somehow a snapshot of who we are? And now we live in a world where 
I don't know that what's in our pockets would necessarily even warrant much description. On any given day, what do I have in my pocket? My phone, which I guess would be a lot of evidence of my life on that, but uh, my phone and maybe some lip balm and maybe a stray dollar or two. That's probably all I would have. Ross said that John Jacob Astor's body had a watch and that watch hadn't stopped until 3.30 a.m., so over an hour after the final stage of the sinking. The other watches that they encountered on the Bakai Bennett on bodies had stopped at 2.10 in the morning. And Ross guessed that perhaps the wealthy man's watch was so nice that it just lasted longer in the water. He's probably right. You could hear the questions inherent in Captain Lardner's answers after the voyage. Lardner said, quote, We found no two bodies together, all floating separately. No two were clasped in each other's arms or anything like that. In one place, we saw them scattered over the surface, looking like a flock of seagulls. They looked like gulls with the white ends of the life belts fluttering and flapping up and down with the rise and the fall of the waves. And Lardner made a point to say that no bodies contained bullet holes. There was confusion on board one of the days when the crew thought they'd identified the body of first-class passenger George Widener, 50. He was from Pennsylvania, the son of the member of a member of the board of the Fidelity Trust Company of Philadelphia, the bank that controlled, guess what, International Mercantile Marine, the owners of the White Star Line. Uh, Widener also, though, ran a streetcar firm in Philadelphia. Uh, it was very, very, very wealthy. The body that they found had a letter addressed to his wife, but they realized that the quality of the underclothing of the body wouldn't have matched that level of wealth. <laughs> Imagine being identified by the fanciness of your underwear. Uh, the body's head was crushed, and so this man later revealed to likely be Widener's valet, Edward Keating, was buried at sea. But it's clear from Lardner's quotes at the time, combined with what we know of Snow's direction on board, that it was mostly crew, seamen, stewards, firemen, who were sent back into the sea with the iron bars. I went through the records of the bodies, like I said. First, I want to say I know there are genealogists and Titanic researchers who have devoted many, many, many hours to trying to identify some of the bodies listed on the Mackay Bennett records. And there might be theories about certain bodies that I'm not aware of. So that's laying bare my blind spot here. But I read descriptions and a lot of them moved me and I want to share some of them. And it really struck me that for most of the unidentified bodies, their markings and belongings would identify with them with a click of a button now. It's pretty insane to think about. So I'm going to talk about a few of the bodies. Um, some identified, some not. An unidentified cook with, quote, dungaree trousers and gray striped jacket and, quote, nothing to aid in identification. And this one, simple, but moved me. I did uh, a bonus episode that, and I unlocked the episode a few weeks ago about the cooks on board. And they were some of the most hardworking crew. They were expected to work almost around the clock, you know, up at six in the morning, going to bed, 
right around the time that Titanic would have struck the iceberg. So that one was particularly moving to me. Um, One identified body, Frank Millett's body. Frank Millett is a person you should absolutely know about, and I will be doing an episode on him at some point. Born in the 1840s, he literally began his life as a union drummer boy alongside his surgeon father in the Civil War. Perhaps his father was doing some embalming. There we go. It all ties together. He went on to Harvard and became city editor of the Boston Courier. He then devoted himself to a blossoming love of art, and he ended up going to the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Belgium. He was a constant traveler. Um, He kept writing. He knew so many people everywhere he traveled in the writing world, in the art world. During the Russian-Turkish War, he represented several American and English newspapers. He was decorated by Russia for bravery under fire. Uh, Millet's literary talents led him to publish accounts of his travels. And he wrote short stories. He wrote essays. He translated Tolstoy. Millet's work as an artist includes murals in the Baltimore Customs House, Trinity Church of Boston, the Capitol buildings of um, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And his paintings can be found in the Metropolitan Museum and the Tate Gallery in London. He also won a lot of acclaim as the superintendent of decoration at the 1893 World's Columbian Exhibition in Chicago. And when you think about that in 1893, if you've read anything about it, you think of the Great White Way, the White City. Um, Eric Larson's book about the murders at the World's Fair is called Devil in the White City. So this is the Columbian Exposition is known for uh, its decor and its uh, vision of white. And he did that. Millet, Millet did that. So this was a man who, and, and um, I want to credit um, Encyclopedia Titanica for helping me um, give a really concise version of his life here. And I'll, like I said, I'll give a much more detailed version of his life at some point. His, uh, his life and his work in writing and in art really follow the timeline of kind of American history and European history. In the late 19th and early 20th century, he was uh, an incredible man. He did marry a woman in 1879, and he had three kids, including some sons that uh, would be waiting uh, at the dock for him mistakenly when the Carpathia came in because his name, I believe I remember reading this, was mistakenly on a survivor list at one point. So he did marry a woman. She would mostly stay in England. And he continued to travel a lot during his life. He was very definitively bisexual, having had a very passionate relationship that was documented in letters with a writer named Charles Warren Stoddard. Uh, Mark Twain was Millet's best man at his wedding. And I found this little nugget in Gareth Russell's book, Ship of Dreams, by the way. But uh, Twain coined the term a Millet to mean a warm and likable fellow. So he was very beloved. He was a complex person with a gorgeously complex life that, like I said, I want to dig in more too soon. I've seen his biography stripped down to just his relationship with Archibald Butt uh, in terms of Titanic. Butt was a presidential advisor and another 
another person with a stunningly rich life to examine. Uh, The two were roommates in D.C. as Millet's wife, like I mentioned, lived full time in the U.K. As Russell has pointed out, there was some evidence that Butt had nursed some unrequited love for a few society women in D.C., but also... A lot of evidence that Millet and Butt, who were traveling together, obviously in Europe on kind of a restful trip, although they uh, also um, had some diplomatic visits for Butt along the way, they were traveling together. And there's a lot of evidence that the two might have been in a romantic partnership at the time. Uh, There is, and again, this is from uh, Russell's book, but there's evidence that the letter that Millet wrote from the Titanic was based on the descriptions of the room he wrote about was actually Butt's room. So there's, you know, this one theory that they booked two rooms on the ship for, again, that word, objects, and then mostly stayed in the nicer room, uh, in Butt's room, and Millet's room was not quite as nice and was kind of just for show. So people thought that they had two rooms. Uh, Apparently, First Lady Nellie Taft assumed that they were a couple. And I don't know if anyone knows for sure or ever will. And that part doesn't really matter. I see this debated a lot and written about a lot. And I think what's lost in this debate of (laughs) about whether somebody was gay or not or bisexual or not or not what's lost in in prioritizing that part of the conversation is just the richness of both of these men's lives. And like I said, their complexities and their work. So anyway, that's, I don't mean to, to dwell on that. I just wanted to let you know a little bit about Frank Millett and Archibald, but more to come on them in the future. But what matters is that we know without a doubt how dear they were to one another. They absolutely were, and they were traveling together. And they were seen together in some of Titanic's last moments from people that survived the sinking. And there's actually a memorial fountain dedicated to them both in President's Park in Washington, D.C., Rossmore Abbott's body was found. He was 16 years old. He was wearing a brown overcoat, gray pants, green cardigan, blue jersey, black boots. Rossmore Abbott was one of the sons of Rhoda Abbott. Rhoda Abbott was the only woman who survived on Collapsible A. That was the collapsible that Lightholer ended up on, and he sort of helped and, and instructed uh, the people on how to, to balance on the overturned collapsible through the night so that they might survive. Uh, it's a collapsible that uh, after the ship went down, a lot of people just swam for, and whoever could kind of make it and stay balanced through the night made it. A lot of people fell off in the night, but Rhoda Abbott was the only woman on there third class. She'd been traveling with her sons who both perished. Um, It's really heartbreaking. And Rossmore was one of her sons and his body was found. His body also had a watch, a chain, uh, and a medal marked Rossmore Abbott, an empty pocketbook, and two knives. He was buried at sea, so no for sort of physical absolution for his mother, Rhoda. Uh, one of the unidentified descriptions got to me um, because of its immense detail. A man who, quote, wore a light raincoat, uniform jacket with green facing and vest, purple muffler, carried cigarette case, silver watch, knife with carved pearl handle, and a brass button marked African Royal Mail. Who was this person? You know, I think about the color, you know, when we think about people's clothes back in this era, I think we see black and white in our brains and we forget how colorful clothing were. But who was this purple, this man wearing this purple and green jacket? 
with a knife with a pearl handle. I, I wish I knew. An unidentified woman buried at sea, which is not very common, not many men, women were buried at sea, had, quote, purrs with a miniature photo of a young man and a photo locket. No other aid to identification. Who was she? And where was her bow? And was he waiting somewhere for her? Some buried at sea seem rather identifiable (laughs) now from a modern perspective uh, with a bit of sleuthing, like a man who wore a coat labeled hospital attendant with initials on his trousers and a key ring with a New York City address. It seems pretty identifiable. I did come across the story of a man named J.C. Nichols who was buried at sea, but he was later identified through his effects. So I I do think in a couple of uh, these cases that did happen, thankfully. Isidore Strauss's body, Isidore Strauss, founder of Macy's, uh, very well known for the story of him and his wife, Ida, staying on board together till the end. They're in the James Cameron movie. Uh, They're the two, they're the older couple in the bed at the end. His body was found, but not his wife, Ida's, which is an interesting footnote to the sort of it's reached mythological, you know, uh, heights in terms of Titanic lore and stories, the two of them deciding to stay together till the end and not get in the boats. Uh, so it's an interesting footnote to that. One can only hope that they weren't separated in the end after trying so hard to stay together. There was an unidentified female buried eventually at Halifax who was listed as having worn a collar belt. I had no idea what the heck this was, so that sent me down another rabbit hole online. A collar belt was a flat strip of flannel or wool about six feet long and six inches wide, and it wrapped around the abdomen, and it was meant to prevent the wearer from contracting like dysentery, cholera, ailments of the stomach, because it was believed that those were caused by chilling of the abdomen and temperature. The belts were actually used way after the, you know, link between, I mean, pathogens and cholera was discovered, but I guess it was kind of a, just something that stuck around uh, that people continued to do. It became clear quickly that the Mackay Bennett wouldn't have enough of anything to address the situation properly. Not enough coffins or embalming fluid. Captain Lardner wired for help, and A.G. Jones chartered a second ship called the Menia to come behind them. Snow Sr., back in Halifax, notified local casket manufacturers who worked through that afternoon to build more caskets to send. Reverend H.W. Cunningham of St. George's Church in Halifax and Snow's other son, W.H., also known as Will, boarded the Minia on April 23rd and she departed at midnight. The Mackay Bennett headed back to Halifax with 190 bodies, 116 having been returned already to the sea. I turned to the fictional Snow in Wolf's book to touch on this moment because I think, especially in this case, historical fiction that's rooted in research is sometimes the most effective way we have to get at a feeling. Quote, the first class dead in the privacy of their coffins, the steerage laid out upon the windswept decks under loosely draped tarpaulins that rise and fall for all the world. It, it looks as if the corpses can breathe as our cargo ship of sorrow picks up speed. 
When the Mackay Bennett made it back to Halifax on April 30th, it didn't dock at its usual pier, but instead sailed about a mile up the dock at the Royal Canadian Naval Dockyard. The location was heavily guarded and was surrounded at least partially by the dockyard's concrete wall. The situation called for privacy and reverence. The Snows had arranged that the coroner and the deputy registrar of deaths would be stationed at the dockyard to issue certificates right away. Burial permits as well speeding up the process, making it as easy as possible for the families. The port physician and the coroner had boarded at St. George's Island before they came to dock. Annie O'Neill, the embalmer, there to embalm the women, was apparently the only woman allowed in the immediate vicinity at the docks that day. The following is an extract from the Nova Scotian Evening Mail, dated April 31st. 1912. Quote, the first bodies taken ashore were those of the crew. These bodies had not been involved or even sewn up in canvas. They had been kept in the ice-filled hold and presented a gruesome sight that it would be impossible to picture. The bodies were carried on stretchers by members of the Mackay Bennett crew, and at times as many as 30 to 40 bodies were in a heap on the deck where they had been taken from the ice-filled It is reported that to get the bodies onto the stretchers and later into the coffins, many of the frozen limbs had to be broken. Sorry, guys. A temporary morgue was set up at the Mayflower Curling Rink nearby with 34 stations where embalmers could work. And remember, a lot of the passengers arrived still not embalmed, including women and children particularly. When the bodies were fully prepared, they'd be brought out to the main rink where 67 canvas-enclosed little cubicles were set up for viewing by family and friends. Shipping of bodies at this point, because right, the question is, what do you, you know, you identify the body and then where does it go? Shipping of bodies was class-based mostly, which is why if you look through the records, all of the, or most of the bodies that say delivered are first class. So unsurprisingly, this is financial, caskets could be carried in baggage cars on trains with the payment of a first class ticket and could also be sent by express on the payment of to first-class fares. So perhaps the decisions made by Snow and other officials about the burials at sea, about the distribution of coffins, were made with an awareness that finances would absolutely dictate the ability of a family to transport a body. That doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make up for the desolation of those lost bodies, but I suppose in proper historical context, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, Julie Cook, a descendant whose great-grandfather was crew on Titanic, has written a book about the families and widows left behind in Southampton. And in it, she mentions a woman named Emily Wormald, 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 W-R-O-R, M-A-L-D, whose husband, Frederick Henry, died on Titanic, and his body, unlike many of the crew found, made it back to be embalmed in Halifax. And it's really an insane story of what happens after that. So he is mistakenly buried in a Jewish cemetery. A doctor identified him as Jewish. He wasn't. So she wants to go and uh, see his grave after all of this happens. And 
Was it clear she maybe had an idea of of possibly exhuming the body and moving it to a different burial spot? So she and her six kids petition apparently the White Star Line for the money to go over and White Star Line gives them the money, they go. But when they arrive in uh, in New York, her, do they arrive in New York or Halifax? I guess they arrive in Halifax. Read Julie Cook's book, <laughs> City of Widows, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. But when they arrived, because of immigration and a quarantine issues, they weren't allowed in. They were denied entry into Canada. So they had to go right back across the ocean. Uh, in third class, they're in third class, her and her six kids. And when they arrive back uh, to Southampton, their apartment has been rented out because the landlord found out that they had made this trip overseas and just assumed that they were using the White Star Line basically as just a way to pay for tickets to move over to either Canada or America. So they come back and they all their or most of their belongings are gone and a neighbor has tried to save uh, what she could. So just a horrific story. And and I'm sure there are a dozen stories very similar to that. And and anyway, I do recommend reading Julie Cook's book. I have actually not read the whole thing yet. I've been through a few chapters kind of looking for um, information, but I still owe that book a full word-for-word read, and, and that's definitely uh, really high on my to-be-read pile right now. Captain Richard Roberts of the Astor Yacht was on hand to identify J.J. Astor's body. After looking for just one moment, he is said to have turned away and whispered, it is he. There's controversy about Astor's body, um, you know, rumors that it had been crushed, that obviously uh, there was this you know, mythology of men like him staying on the decks at the end. And in his memoir, apparently Archibald Gracie claims that Astor's body was recovered in this kind of crushed condition. And this has led to the belief that Astor was killed by the first falling funnel from the ship during the sinking. But two members of the crew of the Mackay Bennett and Captain Roberts, who identified the body, said that apart from discoloration from the water, which was very common. Astor's body was actually pristine. There's a survivor named Philip Mock who was quoted as claiming to have seen Astor in the water clinging to a raft with William Stead, who I've talked about. He's the one that was the spiritualist. And um, in my Supernatural episode, talk a lot about him. Uh, their feet became frozen, said Mock, and they were forced to release their hold, and then they drowned. So this is what Mock said. Now, I want to make clear, I don't necessarily put finite weight behind any claim of a survivor. I think I've said it a thousand times, memory is incredibly fallible, and there's absolutely no chance in in knowing definitively what happened to Aster or to anybody in those final moments that didn't make it. There's never going to be an ironclad timeline of the sinking, but I do think it's interesting what what bits of info from survivors becomes lore and mythology and what doesn't. I mean, obviously, if Aster is clinging to a raft at the end trying to survive, which any human being would do, and that's that's courage. That though kind of doesn't work with the typical, you know, mythological narrative we have of Aster on the deck at the end, kind of going down nobly with the ship. Those don't really mesh together. 
which I don't understand. I, I don't understand people that hold on to this myth of the first class men smoking cigars at the end. I think it's much more beautifully human and courageous to imagine that they were doing everything they possibly could to try and survive at the end. I mean, J.J. Astor had just put a pregnant wife on a lifeboat and tried to get on the lifeboat with her, understandably. And he's in the water trying to survive. He wants to meet his child. So anyway, there's my two cents on that. I know I've said it a hundred times. Um, so back to Halifax. Signage went up. Flyers were sent out. The bodies were to be held at the curling rink for two weeks for viewing so that loved ones could identify them. Again, this is the reason crew were buried at sea. Sadly, everyone involved knew that those families from Southampton would not be able to afford coming over to view bodies. The undertakers had photos made of the bodies, so if a body ended up being buried unidentified, there were always there would always be the chance that photos would ID them later or effects would ID them and they could be exhumed and then moved wherever they needed to be. A crowd formed at the rink at this makeshift morgue, unshockingly. Family members lined up. A nurse named Nellie Remby was on hand with smelling salts at a first aid station to manage shock. And I think this is another moment in which it's important to note the role of a woman in this process. Um, so often we think of this entire process as male, sailors, crew, medical officers, coroner, and it's understandable, given the era, that uh, we have all these spaces cataloged in our mind as male. But here was a woman playing this minute-by-minute -minute vital role that day. I found Nellie's obituary, and she was born in 1883, which would have made her 38, 39 at the time, about my age. She actually lived until 1961. Embalmers continued to work on site. The female embalmers I mentioned earlier, also a man named Frank Newell, actually unexpectedly came upon the body of his own uncle, first class passenger Arthur Newell, and apparently passed out from the shock of it. Understandable. Another undertaker broke his leg, removing a body from the ship. The other part of this, obviously, is that burials also began. In some cases, the decomposition of the bodies that hadn't been embalmed at sea heightened the urgency, and by late in the evening on May 2nd, 59 of the bodies, most unidentified in this uh, group, were prepared for burial in Fairview Cemetery, where spectators gathered and a Royal Canadian Regiment band played in solemnity. The bodies were put into long trenches, each eventually with a stone, that would bear a number. That number would be cataloged with photos of the corpse and notes about his or her effects, just in case a family member or friend eventually surfaced to claim the body. Ten of the bodies were thought to be Jewish and were buried in the Baron de Hirsch Cemetery. At St. Mary's Cathedral, mass was held for four unidentified females. Their bodies were later laid to rest in Mount Olivet Cemetery. On Saturday, May 4th, there was a service for an unidentified toddler boy that the Mackay Bennett had found early in its search. This body and its unknown story had, as you can imagine, quite the effect on the crew of the ship. The little boy was found in a gray coat with fur on collar and cuffs, a brown serge frock, petticoat, flannel garment, pink woolen singlet, brown shoes, and stockings. Crew members chipped in for a headstone for the little boy, and the Snows held the funeral for him at no cost. Hind, who had served as chaplain on the ship, held the service for him at St. George's Anglican Church 
attended by 75 of the crew from the Mackay Bennett. The tiny casket was carried by six sailors. The monument in Fairview Cemetery says, erected to the memory of an unknown child whose remains were recovered after the disaster of the Titanic, April 15th, 1912. The sailors called him Our Babe, according to a Mackay crew member named Clifford Crease. For many years, there was confusion about who this child was. But in 2008, uh, DNA analysis by Canadian researchers positively matched the remains to surviving family, proving that the child was Sidney Goodwin, born in Melksham, Wiltshire, England, on September 9th, 1910. He was the child of Frederick Goodwin, a printer and compositor, and Augusta Tyler. He had five siblings who were all more than 10 years older than him. Several of his father's siblings had immigrated to America and settled in Niagara. His uncle Thomas notified the family of a position for his father at the power station at Niagara, and so the family made plans to go over. Funds for travel, uh, they borrowed from uncles and aunts. This was really common. And the family had originally planned to cross on another steamer, but the coal strike, and you hear this story a lot, changed their plans. So they were on Titanic in third class, the entire family. And uh, unfortunately, uh, like a lot of large families in third class, uh, the entire family was lost in the sinking, the whole family. There is a memorial to the family in the church at Melksham, Wiltshire. The Minia had remained at the sinking site, but had not recovered as many bodies as the Mackay Bennett, hindered by consistently bad weather. After a week, they'd found 17 bodies, one of which was Charles Hayes, president of the Grand Trunk Railroad in Canada. Hayes went to England for a director's meeting where he was going to propose to spend, essentially spend the company uh, out of bankruptcy by building these luxury hotels. And Hayes had already built a flagship hotel, the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa, and he had plans for six more, apparently. So Hayes had actually had discussions with the White Star Line about, you know, travelers from Europe to what they called the Orient using White Star ship and also his railroads or sort of a joint venture. So as a result of these conversations and this potential business relationship, Bruce Ismay had invited Charles Hayes and people he was traveling with on board Titanic. This is also big in the lore and in the mythology. Apparently, one hour before the disaster, Hayes was with Archibald Gracie and Edward Crosby in the Gentleman's Smoking Lounge, and they were talking about technological advances in transportation and just kind of technology and the world in general. And apparently during this conversation, Hayes said that while Titanic was obviously an incredible vessel, he thought that the trend of going larger and larger with these transatlantic liners would end in tragedy. That apparently was his quote, will end in tragedy. 20 minutes later, I mean, how could we know how many more minutes? But that's what the Lord says. Uh, 20 minutes later, apparently, after he said that, Titanic did strike the iceberg. He put his wife and daughter into a lifeboat and didn't make it. And the Minia was the ship that found him. 
It was no trouble to identify him, Sailor Francis Dyke wrote, because he had a lot of papers on him and a watch with his name on it. Uh, His coffin, Hayes' coffin, was brought back to Montreal for burial aboard his private railway car. On May 6th, another ship called the Montmagny went out for one more sweep of the area of the sinking with John Snow Jr. back on board. And I think about this at, you know, talking about Snow earlier. He went back out just a week later. He was dedicated to his work. You can interpret that a thousand ways, but the dedication to a task, I think, is undeniable. The Montmagny found a few bodies. A ship called the Algerian also searched in mid-May and found just one more body, that of Titanic steward James McGrady. On Sunday, May 19th, the formal search for Titanic bodies came to a close. 209 bodies had been brought to Halifax and only four were left at the morgue rink. They were brought to Snow's offices and the mass site was closed. The White Star Line deposited $7,500 with the Royal Trust Company of Canada for care of the graves. So many people, not from Canada, but from across the ocean, had been crossing an ocean with such detailed plans in many cases, and now their final resting place, these cemeteries in Halifax, somewhere they'd likely never been in their lives. 121 Titanic victims are buried at Fairview, 19 at Mount Olivet, and 10 at the Jewish Cemetery. The figure I found was that 43 remain unidentified. The Mackay Bennett continued at Halifax until 1922, when it was returned to Plymouth, England, and used as cable storage. It was bombed and sunk during World War II, but refloated and used as a hulk until 1961, when it was finally scrapped. The sinking's location, just the product of random fate, tied the Titanic to Halifax and to Canada forever. I've never been to Halifax, but I plan to. It is in many ways a sort of pilgrimage site now for those of us who seek out Titanic Um, and also, I'm sure, for descendants of victims. Uh, Disasters need those physical spots of memory, and I think Halifax has become a really important one for Titanic. Titanic's actual wreck obviously lies so far from reach, but in the rows of graves in Halifax, there is literally and figuratively this concrete to brush against and something solid that looks like grief, something solid to put grief into. I was thinking about baby Sydney as I wrote this episode late one night recently, the little toddler boy that uh, the Mackay Bennett crew called our babe. And I was feeling emotional, obviously. I have kids. Uh, You don't have to have kids to feel emotional about that. It's it's heartbreaking. Uh, But I saw a photo of of just a few minutes later, I was I was online checking some news, and I saw a photo of this beautiful Ukrainian child, probably around the same age, huddled in terror on the street, you know, trying to hide from shelling with his family. This was in a you know, news dispatch from Ukraine, and the through line just suddenly seemed so clear, you know, of suffering, of humanity. Um, obviously, two very different types of traumas and disasters. Uh, Obviously, what's going on in Ukraine is 100% um, preventable and uh, heartbreaking in ways that uh, I know I can't even imagine. Uh, So different, but uh, the tragedy, the humanity, and this idea of a small child suffering through something that they have no control over is 
moving to say the least. So I just want to remind everybody, obviously, you know, this is what I, what I do is talk about history and I dig in the past and the past and the past, but um, the present is really important uh, as well. And uh, just, you know, continue to donate to Ukraine if you can and to help in any way that you can. All right. I guess, you know, ending on a somber note is makes perfect sense. It's an incredibly somber topic, but I will say researching this topic has really invigorated me with the Titanic story and what there's left to uncover more than any other topic I've ever researched for the podcast. I I don't know what to say. I I really didn't expect how many primary sources would lead me down these kind of rabbit holes of uncovering. And I didn't expect how many kind of gaps in the story there are. There's a lot to to know. We don't know anything about Nellie Remby, the nurse. We don't know anything about Annie O'Neill, the female embalmer. We still don't know a lot about the bodies that were found. So it's, um, I don't even know the word. Just, you know, I bring this episode to you. So it's quote unquote done, but the story is definitely not done. I, I may do an update on it at some point. I may bring someone on to talk about it at some point. It's, I think, a part of the story that's not written about or spoken about enough. So I'm not leaving it be. I'm going to come back to it, I'm sure. All right. Thank you for listening. I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers. I want to thank JC. I want to thank Laura. And I want to thank PJ. Thank you for being the newest Unsinkable VIP members. I am so grateful. Thank you so much. There are a couple of exciting things coming up on Patreon. First is, well, April bonus episode. So the bonus episodes are typically the last day of the month. I have already let my current Patreon subscribers know that the April one is going to be a few days late. Uh, I'm sure I will reveal all in time, but I've just got a lot of, in good ways, crazy things going on in life right now. And uh, just a a teeny bit behind uh, the the April episode is going to be exciting, though. It's on Dorothy Gibson, the movie star that was on board Titanic. So that will be up within the week, and I'm so sorry for the delay. And then also behind the paywall is uh, the upcoming review by me and my husband of Titanic 666, the Tubi movie. That will be on there in the next week or two as well. And that one will be behind the paywall because I don't think we'll be able to achieve uh, Apple level of uh, quote unquote clean podcast content because I think there's a lot of weird, creepy stuff to describe. And I can't promise that we won't uh, drop a curse word or two uh, in jest. So that will be behind uh, the paywall and will be really fun. So if you if you are you know thinking about becoming a Patreon subscriber, you can go to patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod and you can see some of the posts that are you know open to the public, although a lot of them won't be visible unless you are a paid uh, Patreon member, you know, things like the bonus episodes and uh, some announcements that are specific to Patreon members. All right. Thanks, you guys. What 
else. Uh, Book Club, uh, the pick for the book episode for May is going to be Eric Larson's Dead Wake. I want to thank Mitchell, who is a listener and also a Patreon member, for suggesting this because we are coming up on the anniversary of the Lusitania sinking in May. And uh, Lusitania is one of those ships that's often mentioned just in that second breath behind Titanic when we ask the question, you know, why does Titanic stick in the cultural memory? A lot of people say, why not the Lusitania, for example? And it is an interesting question because it's a huge tragedy. Uh, lots to unpack. And Eric Larson's book is incredible. Uh, I did, to note, I did shoot my shot and email Eric Larson. And to his credit, he got right back to me. And my heart skipped a beak when I got an email from Eric Larson in my inbox. He got right back to me and was so wonderfully nice. And he said, you know, thank you for the invite, but I'm working on a new project right now. And uh, it's just been, you know, he said it'd been so long since he wrote Dead Wake, he would want to do some prep for an interview for it. And he just doesn't quite have the time. But uh, getting that email pretty much lined up with everything I've ever thought about Eric Larson, which is he is a wonderful human. And if you've never read his books, oh, gosh, please do. They're incredible. So uh, yeah, May will be Dead Wake by Eric Larson. And then uh, we're going to close out in early June the season with a book club episode with Stephen Beale, the professor who wrote Down with the Old Canoe, the cultural history of Titanic that was written in the 90s that I reference all the time. That is just always a center point when I when I go back and, and want to frame my talks about the cultural history of the ship. And he has agreed to come on the podcast. So we're going to do an interview and that will sort of close out the season in early June. So excited about both of those. Um, I'll have some May episodes as well. And then season one will close out that first week of June. Patreon will keep going as normal. Bonus episodes will keep going as normal. Communication with me on Patreon will keep going as normal. But the main feed episodes will be on hiatus just for a couple of months. I'm going to use that time to just be with my kids for the summer and also to do some research and some organization and some writing heading into the fall episodes. And also hopefully I'll be able to do a little bit of Titanic related travel. So we'll see. Um, What else? What else? What else? Uh, Thank you to the You Are Good podcast. Just want to say, I've mentioned it before, their episode on 97's Titanic is phenomenal. And they have just been a great friend of this show. They reposted announcements about my episodes, have been incredibly supportive, and you should definitely check out that podcast. It's wonderful. That's the You Are Good podcast. Please let me know what podcasts you're listening to. I'm always on the hunt for new, especially history podcasts. So please, you know, find me on Instagram or Twitter at UnsinkablePod. Let me know what you're listening to. I will do a book giveaway for the book club books like I always do. So look for those on Instagram. And let's see what else. Sources for this episode will be on my website. I will also put some information on some things I mentioned in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your weekend and we'll talk soon. Bye, guys. Bye.